Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in section 29 of the Doctrine and Covenants, aren't we, Bryce? Yeah, we get one section all week. Now, be careful with this one. This one's easy to sensationalize. It's easy to get lost and scared. Flies and maggots. Flies eating your flesh. So be careful, and you've got to see the overall picture. Remember that this is a tough time for a young church, right? Things like the lawsuit that Joseph was arrested, or there was a time they wanted to hold a baptism or some baptism, so they dammed up a river, and they come back the next day and someone had busted up the dam. Yeah. His own wife couldn't even get confirmed on the date of her baptism because Joseph was arrested. They're always being harassed, either with lawsuits or like even Emma's own father is like, hey, get out of my house. And so that's a real struggle. And so the church is going to move around. Yeah. Even the getting the wine for the sacrament, if you remember section 27, yeah. where an angel stops Joseph and says, these guys are trying to poison you guys. So the setting here is this young church is getting roughed up. And Jesus is very common when his people are struggling and in despair, that he gives them a message of hope. Do you remember Alma the Elder when he's being afflicted by Amulon and the Lamanites and they have taskmasters and their life is really tough, and the Lord just steps in and delivers what is one of the most beautiful messages of hope and strength and encouragement? Or the Last Supper where he tells them that he's leaving and they're so distraught and the disciples are so scared of the future, and Jesus just delivers this beautiful message on hope and peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. And that's what he's doing here. A very young church who undoubtedly is looking around and saying, how in the world are we going to survive? If the world hates us this much, if they're persecuting us this much, if it's this hard just to hold a baptism, how in the world are we going to survive? And so the Lord reveals an incredible section whose central message is Jesus will prevail. Christ will prevail. It's going to point out all the times that Christ has already prevailed. And then it will point to some very significant moments where Christ will prevail, like the second coming. So don't get the flies and maggots out of proportion. Don't see just some scary things coming, like a hailstorm that's going to destroy the crops of the earth. I think sometimes we read section 29 and we think it's just a handbook to talk about the second coming. And of course, Jesus is going to lay this out. But Bryce, talking to you, I'm hearing you say it's bigger. We got to back up and look at this with a bigger lens. Yeah, the second coming is one example of Jesus will prevail. So we're obviously going to take a look at Christ will prevail at the second coming, but we're going to jump to the very end of the millennium where there's going to be another war and Christ will prevail. We're going to go all the way back to pre-mortal life and to the Garden of Eden and show Christ prevailed way back then. He will prevail. If you're on his team, you're going to prevail, Joseph and the early church. And so by extension, I would say to all of you who are frustrated with the pandemic 
or the wickedness on earth today, whatever is frustrating you and you're wondering how in the world are we going to survive in this environment, you need to read section 29. And you need to see the message that Christ is going to prevail. So be on his team. So let's now take a look at the individual verses of section 29. I would suggest we break this section into four pieces. The first piece is verses 1 through 8, and we're going to label that, who is in charge and what has he promised to do. These are the messages right from the Savior's own lips to remind us who's in charge and what has he promised to do. And then 9 through 21, we're going to focus on the millennium, the millennial day, and we're going to watch Christ be victorious over the wicked who are fighting against him. So I think this is probably the section people really get kind of concerned about because they read some of this stuff that we've talked about. And this section overshadows the whole section, but we've got to put it in perspective and say the second coming is simply another example of Christ prevailing. And then starting in verse 22, we jump to the end of the millennium. Notice verse 22 says, when the thousand years are ended. Here's another example of Christ prevailing. So 22 through 29 is what's going to happen at the very end when the millennium is over and we finally kick Satan out once and for all. The beginning of the millennium, we're just going to bind him and we're going to destroy his followers. But at the end of the millennium, we finally have the ultimate victory and cast him out forever. Christ will prevail. Then starting in verse 30 through the end of the section is the last chapter. We're going to jump all the way back to premortal life. And we're going to watch Christ prevail over Satan and his hosts who rebelled against God in premortal life. So we can already say Christ has prevailed. And he will prevail on earth the way he prevailed in the premortal life. So we should have hope. So we're going to kind of talk about, well, why does he have to prevail over wicked? Why is there wicked in, in the first place? The rules he set up in the very beginning about agency are the reasons that there will be wickedness and he has to prevail over it. So we're going to set that stage about how important it was for Adam and all of us to be tempted and why we need to be tempted and agency. So we're going to jump back and talk about that. Section 29, in, in essence, is big in scope. It is All huge. the way back in time, all the way to the future, and yet Joseph and this teeny little band of Christians, they're so small, yeah. are wondering, Lord, if you're with us, what is going on? And I think this is also talking to us too, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, because we are li- as we get closer and closer to the second coming, there will be moments that appears that evil is going to prevail. That sin is going to prevail, that we're the, the church, the restoration is a lost cause, and there's no way we can succeed. And we need 29 just as much as a young, struggling early church did, because Jesus is going to prevail. Now, there's something else you need to notice as we go through the doctrine kind of. Joseph is doing something, and it's kind of a fascinating thing that we need to watch for. Yeah, the background to this section really is the Joseph Smith translation. So he's obviously started it, right? Yeah. We so think... the Book of Mormon's been published, the church gets organized, and almost immediately the Lord says, 
Hey. Start revising the Bible. Yeah, get to work. I mean, look at verse 5 of section 24. Section 24 is the, that composite revelation to Joseph and Oliver, and it's in 1830. Look in verse 5. Thou shalt continue in calling upon God in my name and writing the things which shall be given thee by the Comforter and expounding all scriptures unto the church. And then he gets it again where he's told to you know, bring forth the scriptures. And so early in June of 1830, Joseph Smith starts working on what we are going today call the Joseph Smith translation. And Joseph Smith is going to go through that text starting in Genesis between June of 1830 to about July of 1833. It's going to be about a three-year process, and there's going to be a bunch of changes made to the, the text of the Bible, over 3,000 verses are going to be altered. Now, this is coming from a Bible that Oliver Cowdery purchased, and he purchased it from the same guy that is going to print the Book of Mormon. For $3.75, Oliver purchases from E.B. Grandin a copy of the Bible, and it's a quarto-sized Cooperstown Bible and it's 9 by 12. It's like a family Bible. So that kind of gives you an idea of how big it was. It was a King James Bible. And probably my favorite person who's really studied this out is a guy by the name of Robert J. Matthews. And he's got a really great story, how he heard about this and how when he was a young seminary teacher, he got in his Volkswagen and he drove to Missouri and he sat down with what today is called the Community of Christ Church, but back then was the RLDS Church because they had the manuscript. You see, when Joseph dies, Emma has it. And so Emma has this manuscript of the Bible translation. Well, Robert J. Matthews meets with them and over time develops a relationship, cultivates trust with them, and they let him look at it. And then he starts copying and writing it down. And lo and behold, in the 70s, when the Scripture Committee forms the new scriptures, he's on that committee with Bruce R. McConkie and Thomas S. Monson and Boyd K. Packer, and that's what those little footnote changes in your Bible where you can see those, the JST as it's called, that's the Joseph Smith translation. Now, one thing that's significant to know is only two chunks of the JST make it into the canon. Everything else is put in footnotes or appendix. There are two pieces that the church felt so significant that were revelation and canonized scriptures that they are now in our Pearl of Great Price. And those two chunks are the JST of Genesis 1 through 6, which was dramatically changed from the King James Version. And we call that the Book of Moses. So let me be clear. The Book of Moses is the JST, the inspired changes made to Genesis 1 through 6. That is canonized. That is put in our scriptures as canon. And then the other chunk will be Matthew 24. Joseph doesn't make a whole lot of changes in terms of additions or deletions, but he reorders a whole lot of that chapter. Yeah. And because it deals with the second coming, it's the only place in Scripture where Jesus goes into detail about his second coming. That one has been canonized, and it's called Joseph Smith Matthew in the Pearl of Great Price. All the other inspired changes are found in your footnotes. I shouldn't say that. Some of the inspired yeah, changes, because we don't have all of them included in the Scriptures. Some of the inspired changes are in your footnotes or in the appendix, but two were canonized. And that's significant because today Mike's going to be talking about Moses, 
and how Moses starts to creep into DNC 29 and other sections. Because that's the background. Moses 1 through 4 is translated, we're pretty sure from historical sources, that this is done before September of 1830. So read Moses 1 through 4, read section 29, and in the words of Robert J. Matthews, he says that these texts, Moses and DNC 29, are interwoven, they're interlinked. So that's one thing we're going to watch for, is watch how what Joseph is receiving in the Pearl of Great Price in the book of Moses finds its way into Doctrine and Covenant section 29. It's almost as if the Lord is saying, hey, now that this stuff is on your mind, can I put it in context? So now let's go back to that context, and that is Christ is going to prevail. The very name of Christ suggests he can't not prevail. And so what does he call himself? Very first verse. Now, you've got to pause here and understand how he's starting. Listen to the voice of Jesus Christ, your Redeemer, and then he calls himself something that automatically sends the message that he is going to prevail. Mike, tell us about the great I Am. Yeah. Let's talk about the name for just a little bit. That's coming out of Exodus 3.14, and that's that famous verse where Moses comes and says, Lord, if I'm to go and speak to the Israelites, what name am I going to give them? And in the English, it's translated in, in the King James, go tell them that I am who I am. And it's beautiful, but I think it's also really kind of puzzling. Because you read that as an English speaker, and you, and you think, well, what is this? What does this mean? In the Hebrew, ehie, asher, ehie. And asher is a connecting word, which means that, or who, or which. And ehie is, it's the first person singular imperfect of the verb to be. And in Hebrew, it means it's an incompleted action. So a good translation would be, uh, I will be, or I am being. So it's a being word. It's a word that means, I am causing, I am existing. It's a beautiful word in the sense that it has like a vowel breathy sound to it. If you slow down and you read it and you're like, a, ah, o, ah, it's almost like breath. A, ah, o, ah, like the breath of life. We don't know how to say it, but we think this is where we get the word Yahweh because they change Ehie with the Aleph at the beginning of Hayah, and they change it to a Yod. And that makes it third person singular masculine. So he will be Yahweh. And so what does that mean? Probably a really good translation of Yahweh is he is who he will be, or he is one who is being or will cause to be. And it's a beautiful word because it's someone who is being. And if you look in the Moses narrative, so Moses chapter 1 is like pre-Genesis 1. Moses chapter 1 is the missing first chapter of the Bible. There's this whole backdrop to the the Genesis account. So Moses 2 is Genesis 1. So Moses 1, like Bryce said, is the beginning. And notice what Joseph tells us the name of God is. So Moses 1 verse 3, God spake to Moses saying, Behold, I am the Lord thy God Almighty, and endless is my name. Now, endless is a really good translation in the sense of I was and I am and I will be, which Christ's victory in the past and his victory that is coming in the future. And I think 
intrinsic in section 29 is this message that he will help Joseph to be victorious to do his job now in 1830. So I like endless as a translation. The, the name Yahweh is typically translated by English speakers as Jehovah, but it really isn't, it's an impossible word, word to say because the vowel markings right under and above the vav, you just cannot pronounce it. Jewish speakers typically say Hashem for the name. They just won't even say it. Or sometimes it, they'll say Adonai. Um, Yahweh is translated or spoken of as Adonai because they're so sacred with the name. But this name has to do with being. And so if you read Second Nephi 2, there's this whole passage about what kind of being is God. And he's one who acts. He is a being who is being who is causing to be. Which means nothing acts upon him. Nothing controls him. Nothing is out of his control. He is a being that acts and is not acted upon. So important. That's an endless being who cannot be defeated. I was reading this fascinating commentary by Douglas Stewart. Now, he's not LDS, but he knows his Hebrew, and he gets into the divine name for pages, but I just want to share this brief sketch of what he says, and he's quoting another scholar by the name of W.H. Brownlee, and he wrote a paper called The Ineffable Name of God, and it really is a word that we just don't know how to say it. It's just one of those words. But Brownlee argues particularly strongly for the concept of Yahweh as a creator God, even to the point of suggesting that Yahweh Sabaot, which we read as the Lord of hosts, should be translated as he who creates and thereby commands the divine host. Now that is significant because we've always looked at that phrase, Lord of hosts, as this military guy who's going to come and destroy you. And that completely changes a lot of things for me in my head, that Lord of hosts doesn't mean I'm leading an army. It's I created the army. I am. I exist. Mm -hmm. And everything else is subject to me. The army doesn't control me, I control the army. That's a significant insight. It's beautiful. Um, it can also mean he who uses the divine assembly of his creation and thereby causes things to come to pass. Just that phrase alone, so sorry, just that phrase alone, I was reading Micah 5 today and getting into some of the translations, and in Micah 5 verse 8, the English is not that God is going to do it, but that he is giving his saints the power to do it. And I see that all over the place in the Doctrine and Covenants where God says, I'm going to give you the power to go and create. Some other definitions Brownlee comes up with are these. And by the way, this is his preferred translation of this name. His preferred translation of Yahweh Elohim, which we see sometimes in the text, would be he creates gods or he creates the members of of the divine assembly. Just think about that for a minute. In other words, Yahweh Elohim, which we're kind of combining two of the names of God, can mean a God who is being, but who creates divine beings. And now Joseph's not going to lay this out in 1830. But when we get into the Nauvoo period, he's teaching this stuff. And it's all intrinsic in the I am that I am. Ehie Asher Ehie, the first person masculine singular imperfect of being, meaning he is being, but it's not completed. Now think about your life. 
None of us are where we want to be completed. We're not there yet. But as we take Christ's hand, he says, hold my hand, and it's a process of being. I just love that name. And that's how section 29 starts, of God telling us who he is. Right off the bat, he's sending the message that Joseph... This is my cause, and it will not fail. So right off the bat, I am the great I am. And then the very next part of verse 1, we really don't need to go any further than verse 1. If you want to just reassure yourself that Christ is going to prevail, notice what he says first. He says, I am Jesus Christ. I am the great I am. And oh, by the way, what victory has he already won? Joseph, look what I've already conquered. He says, whose arm of mercy hath atoned for your sins. Jesus conquered sin and death. So if he can conquer sin and death, Joseph, I can help this struggling church survive. And I think by implication, he can help us. I can help you and your family overcome the challenges that you face. If you are wondering how goodness is going to survive in your family, just remember that Christ has already conquered the unconquerables. Sin and death. Jacob calls him the great monster in the Book of Mormon. Jesus conquered the great monster. He can certainly conquer a force of sinners trying to destroy his young church. Now, before we get to second coming and watch him conquer in the second coming, he's going to give us things to remember. Joseph, Latter-day Saints 2021, here are some things you need to remember. Verse 2, I promise to gather my people as a hen gathereth her chicks. There's the image we need to have. That's the image that Joseph needed to have, that he was looking at the chicks running all around. And if you've ever seen chicks scatter, you can imagine how difficult it would be to gather them. But Jesus comes in and says, I, he, I will gather my people as a hen gathereth her chicks under her wings. It's also kind of a temple image because the wings and the cherubim in the Holy of Holies, this is an embrace where he says, I'm going to bring you into my bosom. Now we're going to save the rest of verse 2 because I think the very last thing we need to say about section 29 is the therefore what. Jesus is going to prevail, therefore what? And he answers that question at the very beginning of the section in verse 2. So we're going to save that to the end of our podcast. But he continues, look at verse 5, and to any Latter-day Saint at any time, no matter what's going on, if you're dealing with health issues, if you're dealing with financial issues, if your children have gone astray, whatever the challenge you face, you're in the situation of Joseph and the early church who is trying to figure out how in the world is this church going to survive when we are so hated? And there are so many people trying to destroy us. And Jesus says in verse 5, lift up your hearts and be glad. Even in the midst of tribulation, I would add, lift up your hearts and be glad. Why? Don't forget this. Here's another nugget of truth you need to remember. For I am in your midst. He's not leaving us alone. And we talked in section 25 why he can't. He's paid too high a price. So lift up your hearts and be glad, for I am in your midst. And I love what he says at the end of verse 5. I am your advocate with the Father, and it is his good will to give you the kingdom. We are going to prevail. 
We're going to prevail over sin and death. We're going to prevail over wickedness. We are going to prevail over every health crisis, every financial crisis, every challenge of mortality, because our captain is with us, and he can't fail. He will prevail. Lift up your hearts and be glad. Next little nugget we've got to remember. So he's the great I am. He's already conquered sin and death. He's going to gather us like a hand gathers her chicks. Lift up your hearts and be glad. I will be with you the whole time. Now, verse 7 and 8, I would just simply emphasize, don't start that second section on second coming. Do not read 9 through 21 until you have really focused on verse 7 and 8. It is the precursor into that second section. He says, you, need, you are called to bring to pass the gathering of mine elect, and mine elect hear my voice and harden their, not their hearts. So the antecedent here is mine elect, the people who hear his voice and don't harden their hearts. Now notice verse 8, and I wish I could just shout this. This is where the loud music should come into our podcast and the crescendo here. Wherefore, the decree hath gone forth from the Father, that they, meaning those who hear his voice and harden not his heart. And I would guess if you're listening to this podcast, you're trying to hear his voice and you haven't hardened your heart. They shall be gathered in unto one place. Now, I don't know if he's prophesying of Zion, a physical one place or a spiritual one place. But the righteous, they who hear his voice, shall be gathered in unto one place upon the face of this land to prepare their hearts and be prepared in all things against the day when tribulation and desolation are sent forth upon the wicked. Let me say that again. Jesus, who has prevailed and will prevail, is saying, The righteous who hear his voice will be prepared in all things against the day when tribulation and desolation are sent forth upon the wicked. There is absolutely nothing you need to be afraid of unless it's not hearing his voice. But if you are committed to following Christ, you will be prepared in all things for everything that's coming. I think if we read the other stuff and we skip eight, you've missed it. Our heart skips. We start. <laughs> we need medicine, right? And so I think it, it, we've got to read verse eight, especially in the context when he starts quoting Ezekiel and stuff. Yep. So verse sixteen, the famine that's or the hailstorm that's coming that's going to destroy the crops of the earth. We will be prepared in all things. Verse. 18, the flies that come in and eat flesh. We will be prepared in all things. We will be gathered in unto one place and prepared in all things. Verse 20, when the beasts of the forest began eating people, we will be prepared in all things. I remember the first time I read verse 18, I was envisioning these massive flies. And it wasn't until I read Ezekiel where I was like, oh, they're already dead. So we'll talk about that, yeah. right? But the preface here, verse 8, is that Jesus' promise is the man who has conquered sin and death will prepare you in all things for what's coming. 
Don't be afraid of the future. We really do, verse 5, need to lift up our hearts and be glad. The future is bright. It is wonderful. You are going to be lucky to have lived in the latter days because he will prepare us in all things. So let's just combine those. He's already conquered sin and death. He will always be with us. Verse 5, I am in your midst. I will gather you like a hen. Now, that image of a hen gathering its chicks, not only does the hen gather the chicks. She's covering them. She's covering them and protecting them. Now, I know this story's been debunked, and maybe it's still true. I don't know, but it sure made an impression upon me years ago when I heard it. They found, uh, I don't know if it was a forest or some something got burned, and they found mounds that were hens, and underneath those mounds of burnt hens were living chicks. Now I've got to look that up. I've got to find that. Now, someone told me once that that got debunked, that it's not true, but the image here is that a hen gathered her chicks in the middle of a storm, and the hen was burned, but the chicks were not. So when Jesus says, I'm going to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks, I will be the shield. It's not just that I gather you, it's that I protect you. So Jesus will protect us, he will be with us, and he will have us prepared for whatever is coming. Of that, I give my solemn testimony. Now, that being said, the Savior's now going to go into some second coming imagery. Verse 9, the earth is ripe, and it needs to be cleansed. There's a lot of wicked people. Now, end of verse 9 is an absolute critical piece of the puzzle you have to understand. People are saying, well, why why is there going to be death? Why is there going to be destruction? Why is death associated with the second coming? And the answer is the end of verse 9, the earth is going to change. The earth is changing from a telestial planet into a terrestrial planet. And wickedness, meaning telestial wickedness, cannot be upon the earth during the millennium. End of verse 9, you've got to hear that. He is not a cruel God, he is not a mean God, he's not a vengeful God. But the earth is going to change, and wickedness shall not be upon the earth. That's the rule of the millennium. So with the earth changing, we as its inhabitants either need to change or we have to go away, because wickedness shall not be upon the earth. That's critical to understand. So those who choose not to change, those who are warned by God and choose not to change, will be as stubble, and they will be burned up. End of verse 11, he says that same thing, wickedness shall not stand. So in all of this, you've got to realize that he's given certain people a lot of chances to change. And missionaries have been sent out, and verse 14, signs in heaven above and earth beneath have clearly emphasized the need to change. All of this is our day. And the Lord has been trying to get the wicked to change, but they have chosen not to change. Now, we're going to get to agency at the end of this section, but they have chosen not to change. Therefore, they have to go away. He's got to burn them up as stubble 
because wickedness can't be upon the earth. Now, again, usually the question I get is, well, how do I know if I'm wicked? And he defines the wicked as those who won't repent. Yep. We actually have to be repenting. Yep. We're going to see that so many times. Look at verse 17. He's going to say that, I will take vengeance upon the wicked. Why? For they will not repent. End of verse 17, my blood shall not cleanse them if they hear me not. And he just, that going back to verse 2, the therefore what? We have to hearken to his voice, humble ourselves, and call upon him in mighty prayer. I think that's the definition. If you will not hearken to his voice, if you will not humble yourself, if you will not try and reach out to him, then you're not going to change. So that's kind of the background, that the Lord is going to be victorious over the wicked. Verse 13, he's going to warn them, a trump shall sound, the earth shall shake. He's been trying to warn them all along, but they won't repent. So verse 16 about the great hailstorm is in the context of these are the wicked who have been warned and will not repent, therefore they are being destroyed. When do maggots come upon someone? When you're not moving. (laughs) (laughs) If you read verse 8, and maggots shall come upon them, they're dead. And these are the wicked who have to be destroyed in the cleansing of the earth. Now, we don't want to belabor that. It's there. There's some you know, scary things that are going to happen as the wicked need to be cleansed. But then in verse 21, the Lord points to Ezekiel. So right in the middle of a second coming setting where the righteous are going to be prepared, the righteous are going to be protected, the righteous are going to be with God, but the wicked who will not hear his voice have to be cleansed, the Lord says, it's going to be like Ezekiel taught us. Yeah. We're going to talk about Ezekiel and look a little bit into what he's doing. So who was Ezekiel? Ezekiel was a prophet that lived in Babylon during the captivity. What I mean by captivity is when the temple was destroyed after Nephi leaves from about 586 to the 530s, the Jews were in captivity in Babylon. Now, when I say that, I mean, you know, many of them, many of the literates and in, in the royal family and so forth. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, those are yeah. great examples. Yeah. So Ezekiel had a view and a vision that really section 29 really aligns with. And his vision was that Israel would be gathered again. Now he knew history. You see, over a hundred years before Ezekiel, the house of Israel was taken captive by the Assyrians right around 720-ish. And Ezekiel's living, you know, later. And in his life, the Babylonians have taken over. And so he has a vision, and it's this big cosmic vision, that even though the enemies from the north have taken over, they will be restored. Which seemed impossible at the time. How could we possibly ever be Israel again? How could we ever do it? We have been conquered by Babylonia. We have been destroyed. We are scattered. And so the question, oh, God has lost. And there's the setting, right? And Ezekiel is the prophet to say, oh, no, God will prevail. So once again, we're back to that message that even though Israel is captive in Babylonia— God will win this. 
And that seemed impossible at the time, but that's kind of the setting for Ezekiel's prophecies. So all these verses in 29, you know, specifically 17 through 21, about the, their flesh is coming out of their sockets and their eyes and, their, and the flies and all this stuff is so set in the context of Ezekiel because the reason is in section 29, verse 21, the Lord says that the whore of all the earth will be cast down by devouring fire according as it is spoken by the mouth of Ezekiel. And then later he says, this must surely come to pass even as I live for abominations shall not reign. So in the 38th chapter of Ezekiel, he's prophesying verse 8, chapter 38 of the latter years. And there's this war, verse 9, they're coming like a cloud, verse 12, to take a spoil and to take prey. Once again, the motives are in verse 13, to take spoil. And then he mentions that they're coming from the north, verse 15, and also chapter 39, verse 2. Several times he says they're coming from the north. That's going to be important. He also says it in 38.6, that they're coming from the north. That word Safan is an important word. And it what it was, and there's layers to this, but Safan was the parallel to Mount Zion. There were two big cosmic mountains in the Old Testament. One was Mount Zion and one was Mount Zaphon. And there are these competing theologies, at least on one layer of the text. And Mount Zaphon was where Baal would have his house on Mount Zaphon made from the cedars of Lebanon. And Yahweh would have his house built on Mount Zion from the cedars of Lebanon. So there are these parallel ideas. And so Mount Zaphon, that word Zaphon is going to be translated as north in the Old Testament. And it's like a code word to Ezekiel's listeners that there's like this cosmic force from the north and he paints Baal and his followers in this cosmic setting as supernatural powers. And Baal is going to be a god of the dead. There's so much here. I would encourage you to go read the show notes to kind of get more detail, but just know that they're coming from the north. It's this cosmic conflict, and they're falling upon Israel. And the Lord says, I'm going to set fire on them. And he's going to use a couple of different terms for this force. They're going to be called Magog and Gog. In, in the Hebrew, it's, it's Gog, not that it matters. But we really don't know what to do with them. And so I'm not going to try and pin it down on a specific country. Um, I know that there's lots of commentaries that do this. I'm using this as a common term to mean the enemies of God. And I'm also going to say, I believe 38 and 39 to be layered, to be a, a section that we can say, hey, this has multiple fulfillments. So let me just su suggest a couple thoughts to you. Perhaps these armies represent the end times, but perhaps they also represent the end of the end times at the end of the millennium as a suggestion. I also think none of this necessarily matters to the saints. And the reason why I think that is because of what Bryce said about verse 8. The saints of God are going to be protected. And so I think a big clue to this whole section of Ezekiel is the middle of verse 7. In fact, I drew a bunch of lines in my scriptures, and I, and I always encourage students to do this. Look what it says in verse 7 of, of Ezekiel 39. I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people. My people are going to know who I am. And I will not let them pollute my holy name anymore. Now that's talking about the other nations. So God says, I'm going to make my name known among my people, and I'm not going to let the enemies 
pollute my name anymore. And then notice what it says in verse 7. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. So these signs are a sign to make the Lord's name known. That's a meta theme of the entire Old Testament, make my name known. We'll do that next year. From verse 7, draw a line from the top of page 1083 to Ezekiel 39.13, if you have paper scriptures, where it says, it shall be to them a renown the day that I will be glorified, a day of renown. It shall be unto them a day that I will be made known. And then draw another line from verse 7 all the way down to verse 22, so that the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God. These are signs where God's name will be made known. Now, it appears in other places too. Look in Ezekiel 39, 23, that the heathen shall know. And then look at verse 28 of Ezekiel 39. Then shall they know that I'm the Lord. These are signs about God's name, that they will be made known. And big picture, because we're not going to do a podcast on Ezekiel 38 and 39. That's going to be for another time. The big picture is that the good guys win and the bad guys get wrecked. Again, not the first time, not the last time. Now, this is, this is a big message of hope for Ezekiel because where is he? He's got wrecked. Yeah. Like He's in the wrecked portion of the people. Yeah. And historically, where are the enemies coming from? They're coming from the north. So this is a, a geographic thing happening, but this is also cosmic, but this is also Ezekiel's life. Like he is, as it were, in prison. Now... I don't think he's necessarily in prison, but he's taken away from his home. And I think this message can also apply to Joseph. How many times is Joseph going to be kicked out of his home? So Ezekiel and Joseph Smith in the spirit world can probably sit down and break bread. And I think they have something in common. But the big picture is that the bad guys get wrecked, and it says that God's going to send fire down upon these armies. You can read it. It's in the 39th chapter. It will be a day of renown. And then after this happens, verse 17, And thou, son of man, thus saith the Lord, speak unto every feathered fowl and to every beast of the field. Assemble yourselves and come, gather yourselves on every side to my sacrifice that I sacrifice for you, even as a great sacrifice upon the mountains of Israel, that ye may eat flesh and drink blood. And then he says it again in verse 18. And then he also mentions the flesh of lambs and goats and bullocks all of them fatlings of Bashan. Now, anytime you read Bashan in the Old Testament, that's another code word for the mythological northern parts, the cosmic enemies of Yahweh. That is a big code word, and it's all over in the Psalms. It's all over in the Old Testament, and it's a code word for a war, and it's a code word for the enemies of God. So these beasts are filled with flesh. Now, in the ancient world, if you're on the ground and you don't get a proper burial, and birds and, and dogs and so forth are eating you. That's like the worst thing ever. It's desecrated, and it's so sad. Once again, verse 22, so that Israel will know. And then look at verse 17 of section 29. My blood will not cleanse them if they hear me not. These wicked armies are not hearing them. And then verse 18 of section 29. Flies will eat their flesh, and their tongues shall be stayed. Verse 19 and the flesh shall fall off their bones. And then verse 20, the beasts of the forest and the fowls will devour them up. Those verses in section 29 is encapsulating the 39th chapter of Ezekiel. Now, I see this happening again at the end of the millennium. We'll know more when we get there. 
but that's the big picture. And I think, like Bryce said, if we focus on verses 17 through 21 and we read those and we focus on like what I like to call the Michael Bay special effects, it certainly can grip the attention of your students, but sometimes what it can do, this is my experience. It'll scare them. Yeah. And I don't think that's what we want to do. And the whole point of section 29 is that Christ will prevail. Yeah. So don't scare them. Yeah, no, this is called the Supper of the Great God. Where's that at, Bryce? Is that Revelation something? 19. Revelation chapter 19 is that same thing. It's it's the Savior has come, the marriage of the wedding feast. And the idea is if you have fought with God, if you have been on his side and followed him, you will be at the feast. If you have fought against God, you will be the feast. And the symbolism here is the righteous will eat up the wicked. Now, that's not literal. It's symbolic in the fact that God prevailed and that there is a feast of victory. And the food, symbolically, at the feast are the very people that fought against God. And it's a parallel to the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is what? The second coming and Jesus being with his people and having the sacrament together like we talked about in section 27. Do you see how all these are kind of coming together? Like parallels. When you've read the book of Revelation, or if you've ever had a chance to listen to the podcast we did on that, there's all these parallel images. So this is a parallel image, the supper of the great God, parallel of? The destruction of the wicked. Yeah. So that's kind of that second section of section 29. Now, we spend a little bit more time there because that's where everyone's going to go this week. Everyone's going to go. So in your family conversations, in your church conversations, in your conversations with your friends who are doing Come Follow Me, everyone's going to gravitate to the second coming. But the message needs to be that God is going to prevail. The righteous are going to prevail like they did in Ezekiel's day, like they've done so many other times. So now let's transition into section 3 of section 29, which we're going to jump to the end of the millennium. Notice in verse 22, when the thousand years are are ended, we're going to see one more example of Christ being victorious. Now this time is where we're going to completely kick Satan out, not bind him for a thousand years temporarily. We're We're going to kick him out. So again, Christ is going to be victorious. Verse 22 At the end of the millennium, men will again begin to deny their God. There will be people on earth that begin to deny their God. So verse 23, the end comes. The heaven and the earth are consumed and pass away. And end of verse 23, a new heaven. It's a celestial heaven and a new earth, a celestial earth. So the earth is currently telestial. During the millennium, it will transition into terrestrial, so all telestial people have to depart. At the end of the millennium, it will transition into a celestial planet, so all but the celestial have to leave. So the new heaven and the new earth in verse 23 are a celestial planet. Now, verse 24 is kind of fun. I know this is a little side note, but just give you something to look forward to. All old things shall pass away, and all things shall become new. Now, the setting here is all things shall become celestial. So what will be on earth? What will be on this celestial earth when the earth becomes celestial? Look at this beautiful list in verse 24. 
The earth will be changed. The people on earth after the millennium will be celestial. But notice what it says next. Animals, fowls of the air, fishes of the sea. The celestial kingdom will be filled with animals who have become celestial. That's a fun thought. Section 77 will say that the animals will have an ability to speak and move. As the earth becomes a celestial earth, so do the people allowed to stay on it. And the animals, Jesus has prevailed over everything celestial and everything terrestrial. What a glorious time. Verse 25 we are all resurrected beings. We will all be celestial resurrected beings. And verse, not one hair, neither one moat will be lost. Everything will be restored to its glory. Now, what we haven't done during the millennium, we had the resurrection of celestial and some terrestrial. Now we need to wake up the dead. We need to wake up the celestial people. So verse 26, Michael will sound his trump and all the dead will awake. So anyone who's not yet been resurrected by the end of the millennium because they were celestial and couldn't dwell on a terrestrial earth will now come forth. All the dead shall awake. All the graves shall be opened and they shall come forth even all. And now here comes the judgment. Verse 27, the righteous shall be on my right hand, and they'll go have eternal life, and the wicked on my left hand. Now, section 76 is still ahead. The Lord's not going to get into degrees of glory. We're talking degrees of glory on one side, and those who will not qualify for a degree of glory on the other side. And the Lord says in verse 28, depart from me, and go into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then verse 29, where I am, they cannot come, and they have no power. Complete victory over Satan and his army. They depart, and they will go to their own place, and they will have no power. No power over you, no power over your children no power over the people you love, complete victory over Satan and his hosts. And even though Satan has great power today, there will come a day where he is kicked out and has no power to hurt or harm anyone. So we keep seeing this, victorious over death, victorious at the second coming, Joseph, he's going to be victorious in your day. Latter-day Saints in 2021, he's going to be victorious in your day. Now we shift. Starting in verse 30, we're going to completely shift and see it one more time. Let's go back to the dawn of creation, where Jesus conquered Satan in premortal life. So he did it there, he can do it again. So Jesus conquers Satan in the beginning of this plan of salvation, in the premortal life. And Jesus conquers Satan at the very end of the plan of salvation, where he casts him out and, and he has no more power. So we're now going to connect end to beginning. And he's going to bring up agency and why is there wickedness in the first place. So starting in verse 30, let's jump back to premortal life. 
Let's talk about a spiritual creation and a physical creation. Now, this one's worth pausing. Verse 34, all things unto me are spiritual, and not at any time have I given unto men a law which was temporal. Now, that is coming right out of Moses 3. Let's pause and let's jump to the spiritual versus the temporal creation, that God created everything spiritually and then physically. And what does that mean in our lives today? Yeah, there's two creation accounts in Genesis. So if you start in Genesis 1, we read about this creation. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And by the way, the word used over and over again for the word for God in Genesis 1 is Elohim, which is God in the plural. And then you get to the second chapter, and we have this shift. And the shift is in verse 5. So everything is the gods doing this. And then the seventh day, of, this is chapter 2, verse 2, he ends the work that he made, and he rests on the seventh day, and he blesses and sanctified it. And then you get to this interesting verse, verse 5. Now, Genesis 2, verse 5 is Moses 3, verse 5. Now, I'm going to read Genesis 2, 5, and then Bryce is going to read Moses 3, 5, and see if you can see what's happening. So the first account, the first creation account, and in scholarship, they call this P, meaning the priestly source. And then the second creation account is going to start in Genesis 2, and in scholarship, they call this J, which is the Yahweh source or the, the J source. And so there's these two accounts. And who is P and who is J? That's for another podcast. But just know that there's a lot to unpack here with these two sources. And early on, way before Joseph Smith, thinkers are reading this, and they're looking at the text, and they're saying, why are there two accounts? So here it is, Genesis 2.5. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. And here's Moses 3.5. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. For I, the Lord God, created all things of which I have spoken spiritually before they were naturally upon the face of the earth. For I, the Lord God, had not caused it to rain upon the face of the earth. And I, the Lord God, had created all the children of men, and not yet a man to till the ground, for in heaven created I them." And there was not yet flesh upon the earth, neither in the water, neither in the air. Very so, dramatic difference. Big difference. What do you see in there? So the Lord has physical, temporal almost, and spiritual. And we need to understand that the temporal can come and go, but the spiritual will always exist. I would suggest to you that this earth is right in 2021. This earth is year 2021. But the spiritual earth that was created and still exists is not only 2021, but 2020 and 20 and 20 BC and 22 BC and 2022 BC. This spiritual earth created first exists. And then the temporal earth exists. But I love what he's saying here is God saying there's spiritual and there's temporal. And one of the things I get out of that is in my life, if God created spiritual first and temporal second, I should take care of spiritual first and temporal second. 
I need to feed myself spiritually first, temporally second. I need to educate myself spiritually first, temporally second. That's God's priority. First and foremost is a spiritual creation, and then there's a temporal creation. And we need to acknowledge that everything has that dual state, temporal and spiritual. You and I have talked about this before, Bryce, years ago, and we talked about how do we take the creation accounts and apply them in the life of a student. And I'll never forget when we were talking about this and you mentioned, well, we plan things and then we do things. And in a way, it's almost like your morning prayer when you say, Heavenly Father, this is kind of my goal. Sometimes the first thing I'll do in the morning when I finally sit at my desk is I'll get a sticky note and I'll write down, okay, this is what I want to do. This is what I have to do. And that's the spiritual creation of the day. Now the day starts, and what do you do for the rest of the day? You're doing it. Now there's the temporal day. So you've kind of got a plan for the day, a spiritual creation, and then the actual day that happens. And it's almost like at the end of the day, I say, Heavenly Father, here's my report. This is what I did. Now, this creation account is used in all the temples of all the ancient world. Not just the Jews are doing this, but the Egyptians, the Sumerians, they would start the new year, they'd re-dramatize the creation, and then they would use it as a template to figure out where they were in time and in space, and then make goals for the year. Now, if you've been to the temple, you might see some bells ringing. The other thing I want you to think about is what Joseph Smith is doing as a translator. He's not been exposed to these ideas of scholarship. He's not been exposed to these ideas of the two creation accounts. And a lot of this scholarship is really going to come to fruition after Joseph is killed in Nauvoo. And a lot of this is coming out of Germany. But in scholarship, what they've assumed, what they've come up with, and we're not positive, like we don't really know, but that these two creation accounts come from two different time periods and maybe even two different geographic locations and that they were stitched together. And we see this a lot. By the way, in the Old Testament, as by my count, as I've been counting, as I've been going through the first five books of Moses, I found about 40 of these, what they're called doublets or triplets, where the same story is told twice or sometimes even three times. And it really, to me, doesn't negate faith. It builds my faith because Mormon does some of the same stuff, but he's telling you that he is doing it. We don't know the name of the editor of the Bible, but like I said, we've got a couple of these accounts. And what Joseph does is he takes the whole first creation account from P, Genesis 1, and he says that's the spiritual creation. And then he takes the J account where Yahweh is walking on the earth and he's breathing the Neshama. He's breathing the life into Adam and Eve. And if you look carefully, he's even forming them out of the earth. And that's what Adam's name is. Adam is kind of a composite for all humanity. And it comes out of Adama, which is the earth. Adam comes out of the Adama. And Eve is this life bearer, and she comes out of him. Now, this is all metaphorically. But Joseph is doing all this. Joseph Smith, from June to September 1830, is getting revelation. He's putting, by the way, all of Moses 1 is mind-blowing. Read it, where God pulls back the curtain and says, I've made a lot more planets than this, Joseph. There's a lot going on. But only an account of this earth am I going to give you. Yeah. And then he shows him the fall, and he shows him Adam and Eve. And in my estimation... I'm with Robert J. Matthews on this. Verse 30 to 50 is those ideas. So we have creation. We have agency. We have, like Bryce said, who's in charge? Who's, who's going to win? 
all of this stuff is happening in the Moses narrative, which you got to kind of read with section 29. Big picture, Jesus is in charge and it's going to be okay. But also the idea of agency, we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, why are there wicked people? Why are why are these enemies attacking us? So after he talks about a spiritual, then a temporal, again, one more example of Jesus will prevail because spiritually, the temporal is under the control of the spiritual, which was created first, and God will prevail spiritually regardless of what happens temporally on this earth. So one more example. But since we brought up creation, verse 34, Adam... Now he begins to say, you need to understand why there is wickedness and why he doesn't just wipe it out initially. Why does he allow it to even grow? Why even let people be wicked? And so verse 35, we need to talk about this concept of agency, that God will prevail, but he honors men's agency. So verse 35, speaking of Adam, he says, I gave unto him that he should be an agent unto himself. I gave him all the commandments that he needed to succeed, and then I let him choose. Satan, for example, chose. Verse 36, the devil before Adam rebelled against me, saying, give me thine honor. Now, do you see how that corresponds to Moses 4? Joseph's receiving Moses 4, and then the Lord uses that in section 29 to make a point that Satan, before Adam, wanted the honor of God, which is my power, and also a third part of the hosts of heaven turned he away from me, major lesson here, because of their agency. They got to choose. God will and must honor agency. Everyone loves to think, well, I want God to give me agency, just not everyone else. Give it to me, but not you, right? But the Lord doesn't work that way. He has to allow people to choose. And in doing so, some people are going to choose evil. And some people are going to choose, some people are going to choose to do things that hurt you. And you're going to wonder why God lets them. And the reason he lets them is because he has to allow them to choose. If he stops them, he doesn't allow them to choose. Even he lost a third part of his children because of their agency. We get to choose. And the Lord's going to allow that choice to be expressed So here we are on earth, verse 39, we must be tempted. We must be tempted. We would not have a choice if our only impulse was to do good. If the only choices were to do good, we would not have agency. We have to be tempted. It must needs be, or else we could not be agents unto ourselves. For if we never should have bitter, we could not know the sweet. So do you see how this is flowing out of everything that we've just talked about, about people choosing wickedness? They get to choose, and God's victory over wickedness cannot interfere with agency. He has to grant people the right to choose. That means there's going to be wickedness on this earth. And that means sometimes good people are going to suffer at the hands of wickedness. He lets them choose. 
There has to be bitter so that we can have sweet. Uh, Verse 40, Satan tempted Adam. He partook. He fell. He became subject to the devil because he yielded unto temptation. And at that moment, verse 41, Adam, like we do when we yield to temptation, became spiritually dead. When we sin, we become spiritually dead. But don't worry. Here is the ultimate victory, verse 42. So there's agency, there's choice, and there's going to be bad choices. Even Adam made a choice that brought spiritual death. But here's the good news. Verse 42, I say unto you that I, the Lord God, gave unto Adam and unto his seed that they should not die as to the temporal death until I, the Lord God, should send forth angels to declare unto them repentance and redemption through faith in the name of mine only begotten Son, who conquered death and sin. So yes, Adam's going to fall, Adam's going to transgress, he's going to be he's going to yield to temptation, he's going to be subject to the devil, but I'm going to make salvation available to him. And he gets to choose. You can correct one choice with another choice. Verse 43, thus did I the Lord God appoint unto man the days of his probation that by his natural death he might be raised in immortality unto eternal life, even as many as would believe. Do you see why this is included here? God will ultimately be victorious over death, but there is a time and a period for people to choose. We are currently in a world where men and women are allowed to choose to be evil. That doesn't mean God isn't victorious. It doesn't mean God doesn't exist or he's failed because people get to be wicked. It means God will honor agency and his victory over wickedness can't interfere with agency. But after people have allowed to change and haven't changed, then he can be victorious over evil on this earth. So put all those together. But his ultimate victory is that he conquered death. Notice verse 43 talks about resurrection, and verse 42 talks about sin, overcoming death and sin. Now, verse 44, some people will have to go to eternal damnation, not because Jesus can't save them. It's end of verse 44, because they won't repent. It's choice. It's agency. And verse 45, they love darkness rather than light, and their deeds are evil. Now, if they change those deeds, they can qualify for salvation, but they won't change those deeds, therefore they go to eternal damnation. Or we could package that the way section 19 does, right? They go to timeout. They go to timeout, and if they will change, they can, Yeah. and they'll get a do-over. If they won't change then they get the consequences of that. And again, I remind you, verse 29, if you will not change, you will end up in your own place without any power. Now, there's one last subject in which we need to talk about Jesus is completely victorious, and that is children. Verses 46 through 48, Jesus saves the children that children cannot sin. 
Notice that, verse 47, they cannot sin, for power is not given unto Satan to tempt them until they begin to become accountable before me. And he will save them. In verse 48, he will hold their parents accountable, especially if children imitate their parents and do evil. They, he will hold their parents accountable. But children are saved. One more example of Jesus being victorious. I think we do, as Latter-day Saints, have a positive view of the fall. Uh, Second Ephi is going to unpack some of these ideas. And so I would just throw out one more thing, and that's the end of verse 42 and the end of verse 46. Jesus can speak as if he's the Father, and sometimes that's kind of confusing. So a, a really easy way for me to remember this is when someone gives a blessing, they can speak as if they are the Father, even though it is a mortal using the words. Jesus can speak as if he's the Father uh, anytime he wants. We call this in the church divine investiture of authority. So if you go to the very beginning of the section, it's the great I am, and then over and over again he says, I, Jesus Christ, am saying these things. But at the end, he finishes it as if he's the father. To me, it's also as if the father is saying to Joseph through his son, my son represents me. So I kind of like that. I, I really like that ending here. But big picture, Bryce, we're not about flies and maggots. No. This is a section about Jesus being victorious. That's the thread that has to weave all these things together. Now, we need to understand men have agency and can choose, but Jesus will be victorious over wickedness. He was victorious in premortal life. He will be victorious at the second coming. He will be victorious at the end of the earth when Satan is cast out. He has been victorious over sin and death. Joseph, 1830s. He's going to be victorious in your day. Latter-day Saints in 2021, he is going to be victorious in our day. So now we come to the very end, therefore what? If you have studied section 29 and you've come to the conclusion, okay, I trust that Jesus is going to be victorious. You've convinced me. Therefore what? May I suggest we go back to section, the very beginning of the section, verse 2. Jesus Christ will gather his people even as a hen gathereth her chicks under her wings, even as many as will hearken unto my voice and humble themselves before me and call upon me in mighty prayer. When you believe... If you believe that Jesus is going to be victorious at the second coming and in your personal life, listen to him. Listen to what he has to say. Humble yourself. Do it his way. It's better than your way. Humble yourself and call upon him in mighty prayer. That's the therefore what. Because Jesus is going to be victorious, with or without you, let's be with him. Let's hear him. Let's humble ourselves. And let's call upon him in mighty prayer and connect with him on a daily basis. It is my solemn testimony in every situation, even though we will suffer temporarily, Jesus 
is going to be victorious. He's going to be victorious over sin and death and pain and sorrow and anguish and everything that's temporal. And someday he will wipe the tears off of our eyes. And if you follow him, if you listen to him and humble yourself and connect with him in prayer, you will be part of that victorious group. No matter what it looks like, Jesus will be victorious. Excellent. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. We hope you have a great Easter weekend. After Easter, we will see you again when we cover section 30 through 36 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.